0: Now, of course, um, today for us, as as a local church, as a local church, we're we're celebrating um, the nations, and I'm going to be speaking into that and preaching out of that, and we're going to be doing an offering out of that. But it's also obviously Remembrance Sunday and there was a conversation that we had is it a good idea to try and draw together celebrating the nations how how every nation finds a way back to god in jesus and at the same time remembering uh the many lives that have been many millions of lives that have been laid down in war over over the last decades and we we didn't do it lightly we didn't just think, we didn't just um, do it without thinking I gave serious thought to it, and my conclusion was it's entirely appropriate to, uh, to celebrate what Christ has done, because what Christ has done will lead to the healing of the nations. We're going to look at that in a moment. But it's the work of Jesus that leads to the healing of the nations. Um, and so it's, it's entirely appropriate to celebrate na- nations being healed and coming together under Christ. On the same day that we remember the many, many lives lost. And um, I'm not going to be... The sermon is not a remembrance sermon. It's much more a nation celebration sermon. But I think it's very important that we do... Just at the start, before we go any further. It's just that we do stop. And that we do give thought to those who have lost their lives. Jesus said, No, no, um, no greater love as a man than this, That he laid down his life for his friends, or for his brothers. And... Um, it's not just the person who loses their life in war, but obviously in one sense there are many others who figuratively lose their lives when a loved one is lost. When a husband or a dad or a brother, increasingly uh, mum, sister, aunties, are, are lost in war. And we all live day in, day out with, with the horrors of war on our screen. And it's, just, it's very appropriate that we, do, uh, uh, that we are able to blend celebration with sobriety that we're sober and with absolute respect for those who have laid down their lives in war. Whatever you think of war. I know in this room there will be a spectrum. Some people will be an out-and-out pacifist and will say war is always wrong. Others will think differently. Uh, Today's not the day to be debating that or discussing that. But we do absolutely want to pay our respects to those who have paid the ultimate price for for the nation and for those who have paid the ultimate price Particularly in the, in the great wars, which, um, which, which have meant that we have freedom today to um, express what we believe, freedom to speak, freedom to be who we are. And so I, would, I think it's absolutely appropriate, before I go any further, that we do just stop for a moment and that we just remember and reflect upon the fact that you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants and that there are those who have gone before us and who are laying their lives down for the nation today and we give them absolute respect for that. Um, because it's the ultimate price. So let's just be silent for a minute and then I'll lead us in prayer. Lord, we pause together and we, we, we remember those who have laid down their lives for the cause of freedom, who have laid down their lives in war. We think of those even now serving and their families behind. We think of those who down the decades, whether it's the trenches of Belgium or the streets of Berlin or the, the mountains of Afghanistan, have paid the ultimate price and showed often tremendous courage and father we just particularly want to say thank you that we can remember these people and we can pay our respects with hope we thank you lord that we're not gazing into uh, a void into an abyss just thinking where's it where's it going to end where's it going to go we thank you lord that in all the in all the apparent chaos your sovereign hand is working out your purposes we believe it we do we genuinely believe that. But Lord, we do just pause and we pray, particularly for those who are serving and those who have been who have loved ones that are serving. We pray for grace. We pray for wisdom. We pray for those that don't know you to come to know you. We pray for those with authority. We pray for great wisdom in decisions. Difficult decisions that none of us would like to make. We pray for real. A wisdom for governments and those high up in the military who have make the right choices lord pray for men and women that fear you and that love justice and uh, god we do ultimately of course we pray in the name of jesus confidently for the healing of the nations we pray lord for the healing of the nations lord um which we know is in your heart so god we just want to we don't even often know how to pray But we just come before you and at least stand before your throne and say, Lord, here we are on behalf of those people. And we just pray, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done. Amen. Amen. We are uh, currently making our way through the book of Revelation. And um, we are now in Revelation chapter seven. If you'd like to turn to chapter seven and last week we... We did a whistle-stop tour, if you remember, of chapters 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 15, and 16. So if you weren't here last week, you've kind, of, you've kind of been left behind by virtue of being away for one week. So please do listen to it online. Um, it's, it's important uh, for understanding the book as a whole. But in between chapter 6 and chapter 8 obviously is is chapter 7 but perhaps not so obviously between those two chapters at least in how the book is written and how John records it we had the sixth and the seventh seal we have this scroll that's being that John is seeing in heaven this scroll which represents the purposes of God sealed up with these seven seals and no one is found worthy to open this seal no one's found worthy to execute God's purposes on the earth and then one is found the line of the tribe of Judah Jesus And so uh, by his authority, the scroll, the the seals on the scroll begin to get broken. And we have these six scrolls that are broken and all kinds of things, pestilence, famine, war going on. And the judgments of God on the earth um, towards sinful people. And uh, we've looked at that and unpacked that kind of thing. And then in between uh, the sixth seal and the seventh seal, we have chapter seven. And I'm going to read it to you. And then we're going to look at what it means. John says, so after this, after the sixth seal, he says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And where have they, from Where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, I pray that you would help me to um, do well with this chapter, so that it's a blessing to your people. Amen. Amen. Okay, Um, who's ever been visited by the Jehovah's Witnesses? Okay, who's ever got into the conversation about the 144,000? Hey, now you see the 144,000 to the Jehovah's Witnesses are. Uh, it's an interesting one if you've ever got into depth with them about it. I'll try to represent them accurately, but I'm going to just. Uh, the reason I'm doing this is just, just to show people approach this scripture in all kinds of ways. The Jehovah's Witnesses they would say that there are only 144,000, and they're not just Jews, so they wouldn't see it as a literal translation of Jewish, but they would take the number literally. There are 144,000. And they are the chosen, they are the elect, they are those who are are truly born again. And, if you're alive today, you're not part of that number, because that number was sealed up in 1914. There you go. Now the 144,000, they're going to be in heaven for eternity, whereas the Jehovah's Witnesses on earth now, and those who aren't part of that number will instead be on the new earth. Um... And therefore, scriptures that refer to being born again, etc., etc., refer to those that number and not the average believer, etc., etc. Very developed thinking. Interestingly, they've taken the number literally, but not the uh, ethnic reference literally. Many Christians would just look at this and at face value, say it's talking about a group of a, a, a group of 144,000 Jews, and then and then and then what we've got is an innumerable number here who are from all kinds of different nations, because at first reading, that seems the most obvious way of looking at it. And, um, and you'll often find, particularly in Christian circles, where um, there is more of a leaning towards, uh, um, how can I phrase it? It's a delicate one, so I'm trying to phrase, you know, phrase it carefully. But more of an emphasis towards the fact that um, at, at the most extreme, the Jews are God's plan A, and the church is God's plan B. That's a very, very extreme view. But there's a spectrum that kind of travels down towards that road. How do you interpret a chapter like this? What, what is it talking about? And who are these people? Who are they referring to? Well, I'm going to attempt humbly to try to explain this um, uh, to you um, and try and give you some sense of why uh, I would interpret this 144,000 Jews as referring to exactly the same group as this innumerable amount of people from every tribe, tongue and nation. How am I going to do that? Well, let me just make some comments to try and help you understand why um, we approach it this way. Um, we always, particularly with Revelation, when you preach, you preach humbly. Because, <laughs> you, you know, this stuff is not easy. Um, so I'm going to try and be reasonable, explain why. But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go to the stake On this interpretation of this verse, but I would simply want to try and explain why we see it this way, and I'm happy um, here to represent it in this way. Firstly, it's it's referred to the servants of God. It's quite a general point. It's referred to as the servants of God at the beginning of chapter seven in verse um, in verse three, and uh, throughout the New Testament, the servants of God is a reference that is that is given to all kinds of believers whether they're Jewish or whether they're Gentile. So that's the first thing. Um, um, the second thing to say is that it's not uncommon for New Testament writers to take certain titles or names like Jew and New Jerusalem uh, or other titles or kind of phrases referred in the Old Testament to Jews to describe new covenant believers, whether they're ethnically Jewish or not, That's, that, that, that happens quite frequently throughout the New Testament. Certain phrases, images, symbols, pictures used in the Old Testament to describe the, the Jewish people of God are transferred over to the church, which is a mixed uh, group of Jews and Gentiles. So it's not that it's taken away from the Jews, but uh, but the Gentiles are absorbed into the people of God, the the true the, the sons of Abraham, whether Jewish or Gentile, who believe. So, again, it wouldn't be the first time in the Bible that there's reference to Jew, or Jewishness, but it's not talking about an ethnic thing. The third thing to say is that the list of 12 tribes is not conventional at all. So, for example, if you read it, you'll realize there's Dan. Where's Dan? Where's Dan? Dan? Dan's not there. Okay? There should be a tribe of Dan, but the tribe of Dan is not there. Um, I did a little wordplay there with Dan. Did you notice that? That was very clever. Uh, <laughs> So I normally ask for Dan's help in most sermons, so I, I thought that you would all spot that. But Dan is not there. What you normally find in, in, in well, the, the conventional list of the twelve tribes um, of Israel um, would be that instead of there being Joseph there, there would be his, there, there would, there's the two half tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, as the half tribes so is is how they refer to. Whereas here Joseph gets his own tribe, as does Manasseh. So just reading through the commentaries. Um, the, the, the main comment made that, 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 that struck me was that it's just unconventional to the point where you start to ask It makes you stop in your tracks and say, hold on a minute, is this talking about the 12 tribes? Because you're, you're caused to think no when you read it carefully because it's not a conventional list. And then I would say, for me, this was a really interesting point as I, as I studied it and read and read around. It's this, is that John hears the number but sees the crowd. He doesn't see two crowds. John doesn't see two crowds in this vision. Okay? So he hears about some people being sealed by God. And then he hears this representative. It's 145,000 from every tribe of Israel. And then he looks and he sees, and he sees an innumerable number that no one can count. And so actually what we get there is that it makes sense to talk of a multitude that no one can count from every nation who together make up the completed people of God represented by the figurative number, 144,000 Jews. Does that make sense? Yeah? So the 144,000 and the Jew element are being used figuratively to describe the complete number of God's people. A Jew, uh, Jew is a, is a, is a byword in the New Testament, as well as talking about an ethnic Jew, for the true people of God. And 144,000, obviously you've got the 12 by the 12, and all the math symbolically, you know, you can do it. It gets there, it speaks of completion. And so we've got the complete number of God's people being sealed, being kept safe amidst the chaos of all the seals being broken and the trials and the tribulations on the earth. It's speaking of the security of God's people on the earth. So a wonderful quote here says this. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when we first put our faith in Christ. From that moment forward, our ultimate safety was guaranteed. So when the searing winds begin to blow, the servant of God is found to have been sealed already against their power. I'll say that again. When the searing winds begin to blow, the servant of God is found to have been sealed already against their power. The horsemen ride out on their career of destruction, but the church has been made indestructible. Hallelujah. So we're speaking in the middle of all this that's going on, all this chaos. John sees this picture, this image, and it speaks of God's people, the Jews... But actually, when you look, they're made up from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. They're completely there. Not one is missing, because he's the good shepherd. Not one is missing. 144,000, but actually, you look closer, it's an innumerable amount. No one can count them from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is what we are being let into here. God will seal and keep his people, his complete number of people, with not one missing. In the midst of all the madness. In the midst of all the pestilence and the trial and the, no one can be lost. I love that. Just think about it for a moment. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. No one can snatch you out of my hand. So the, the, the plagues, the turmoil, the persecution, the opposition, you cannot be snatched out of Jesus' hand. Nothing. On, what does the Bible say in Romans 8? Nothing in all of creation, either height, anyone, anyone not very good with heights? Yeah, neither height. Nor depth. Anyone not very good swimming beyond their depth they get all funny once you're out your depth. Anyone? Not depth Neither angels. Or demons. Anyone anyone get freaked out by the thoughts of angels and demons? Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're sealed. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. That word in Ephesians 1 talks about being sealed by the Spirit. It says that he comes as a down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance. Once you know you have the Holy Spirit in you, you know that God said, I'm coming back for you. I've got right, bang, done, you're sealed. Security. This is all about the security of God's people. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And we see them around the throne and they're clothed in white. And it's interesting again, the question is, who are they? Who are these people? John says, I don't know. <laughs> I love that. Even in the middle of a vision, you can still be uh, normal, you know. I'd be like, Oh, they must be the um, they must be the apocalyptic army. I'll try and sound spiritual. John's like, Sir, you know. And he's like, I tell you who they are. They're the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, some people would want again want to use the term tribulation to talk about a specific time of increased persecution and opposition towards the end. And that and the Bible seems to hint that that may well be the case uh, towards the end. That, the, that as the church grows in its glory, that the darkness will get darker. But actually, it's probably also just talking about as well the great tribulation, the the, the great pressure that we live in in this age. That as a Christian, you will come through great tribulation. As a Christian, you will come through opposition. You will come through pressure. You will come through difficulty. It's not a walk in the park. We can gather here and we can dance our socks off. But all of us know, it's no walk in the park following Jesus. There is internal pressure, temptation. Temptation to wander, to stray, to give in, to fall back, to lose heart. There There is external pressure. Opposition, misunderstanding, people not understanding, why you love Jesus like you do and what that means. And all of these things. We make mistakes, we get it wrong, we can hurt one another, we can, we can retract in our heart. There's, so there's, it's a minefield. It's a minefield. But we've been sealed. We've been sealed, which means even in that minefield, he keeps us safe. Even in that minefield, there's nothing, there's nothing, no matter whether it's disease Famine, pestilence, persecution, there's nothing that can take you from your place before him in his family and before his throne. Nothing can move you. You can face weeks, months, years of feeling like, I've just get through this and another thing comes. And do you know what? Over those years, none of that ever had any hope of removing you from your place before the throne of God. None of it. At any point ever had the power, the authority, the sway, the uh, the malice to remove you from your place as one of God's children. It's absolutely glorious. Which means that we don't give we don't give way, we don't lose heart, we don't give up. Why? Because He keeps us, He is our keeper, and He who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He keeps you. Do you know that? There are times where you hold on, there are times where you just know you're being held onto. <laughs> You're like, Lord, you know what? I, I really, my heart is to hold on. but I don't even know where to hold on anymore. I, you know, there are those seasons. You're like, God, I'm really glad you've got me because it's not looking too impressive right now. And it's, I've got you. I've got you. It's the love of God. It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel. And now I want to just share with you now, just for the last half of this sermon, I want to just share God's heart for the nations with you so you understand it. If you don't understand God's heart for the nations, then you'll do something different. You'll do a politically correct version. Which is this. We're not supposed to be racist. Let's all clap and be happy about being multicultural. But it's it's nonsense. There's no conviction there. There's no depth of feeling or heart. There's no love there. You just know what you're supposed to do. That's not what we're about. I want to preach to you God's heart for the nations. He loves the nations. He cares about the nations. It's his desire, Jesus says in Matthew 24, I think it's verse 14, that this gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed to every people group on the planet and then the end will come. Wow. Wow, it's incredible. Everyone's got to get a chance to hear. It's the heart of God. Everyone's got, I'm not coming back till everyone's heard. You see, right at the beginning, when, when God made Adam and Eve, he said to them, fill the earth. Fill the earth. He, 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 it's in God's heart to have nations. Fill the earth with my glory. He made them in his image. Now you, now you demonstrate my glory, multiply, and fill the earth with my glory. That is his desire that the earth will be filled with his glory, that his goodness, his beauty, his majesty, the, the sheer weight of who he is, his love would be known around the earth through it being reflected out of those made in his image, human beings. That's the plan of God. That's why you're here. That's what you've been made for. That's your purpose. That's your purpose. It's an amazing and wonderful privilege. It's always been God's will. That every nation would be populated through just two people. Now, as soon as they fall into sin, it's very interesting, as soon as they fall away from God, even their relationship, Adam's and Eve's, becomes tense. They begin blaming one another. The, one of the first things they do, as soon as they disobey God, they move away from God, and then God says, holds into account, God, Adam says, well, this woman, it's this woman you gave me. He tries to blame the woman and God at the same time. This woman you gave me, you know. And then, and then Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and it's blame, and they fall apart. And then they have two children, Cain and Abel, brothers. And you know what happens with Cain and Abel? Cain ends up murdering Abel. And you see, even straight, even straight away there, it's not nations at this stage, it's just a family, but there's war. There's division. There's envy. There's a power struggle. And with, that's all that war is. All that war is, at the end of the day, very often, is a power struggle between two individuals, neither of whom wants to look weaker. If you really want to boil it down, it's 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 global. It ends up in the death of millions, and you know the blood runs waist high. But you get back to what is this? Very very often, it's a power struggle between two individuals, neither of whom wants to look weaker. It's it's pride in the pride in the human heart. And so we see, as soon as sin comes in, people aren't just fractured from God; they begin fracturing from one another, finding things wrong, competing, looking, measuring up. You, you know, so Cain and, Abel, Cain and Abel both bring an offering to God. God uh, God has a uh, he He has regard for Abel's offering not so for Cain's and Cain's face goes down and God says Why is your face downcast? If you do well it's all it's all gonna be good, but you're just you're, instead you're going sullen, you're getting in on yourself, you're starting to think, Oh, why why not I like him, or Who, why should he be seen in that way? And then and then God says, Be careful, sin is crouching at the door of your heart and it wants to master you. Be careful. You got to overcome it, but he doesn't. He said he's overcome by sin and murders his brother. We see the first war. We see the first breakdown, and from then it just gets bad to us. I think it's Genesis four. You've got Lamech. I mean, Lamech is not. You don't want to know Lamech. You know, he's just he's got these two wives, and he's, he, he's 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 not he's not he's not a great romantic. He sort of gathers them and tells them about how he's going to take revenge, and you can see them sitting there thinking. Yeah, you know. Do you know what I mean? If anyone hurts me, I kill them. If anyone if anyone kills me, if anyone kills those that I love, I'm sevenfold revenge. And what you see, you begin to see through the Bible is this spiral of hatred, divi- division, pride. It's an ugly, ugly thing. But it just but then the nations multiply. But this is in the DNA. This is in this is part of it. Pride, envy, hostility, and division. You then see finally some people that come together in unity and what do they say? They say, I don't know, what, why don't we build a tower to heaven and make a great name for ourselves? So they, now we've got unity, not division, but it's unity for what? For our pride. So now that we see, oh no, so we've either got division and hostility or we've got unity, but it's all about making ourselves the top ones, the top city, the top town, the top nation. And God looks at it and says, I'm going to, I'm going to, he judges it. He, he comes to them and he confuses their languages and scatters them. Why? Because God really cares what people unite under. He doesn't just want people to all be together. He really cares what they come together under. And in Babel, they came together under human pride. And God says, no, we're going to deal with it. That's not the plan. That is not what is in God's heart. He cares about what our unity comes together under. God finds a man A man who doesn't, on the face of it, seem like he's anything special, a man called Abraham, and he begins making him promises. And he says, through you and through your seed, I'm going to bless every nation of the world. Through you, through your seed, I am going to bless every people group on the planet. From that point on Genesis 12, we really see this corner is turned up to 11, it looks hopeless. Genesis 12, suddenly now there's a promise of God for the blessing of the nations through the seed of Abraham. We know on the, on, on, at first glance that looks like the nation of Israel. And we see God's love for them and he pulls, rescues them out of Egypt and he establishes them in a land. And the idea is that they will serve him and love him. And, and as a result, other nations would look on and, and they would come to know God. And that would be the, the, the plan that the, the nations would come to the Lord, gather under the Lord through Israel's uh, example of, of holiness. But it, it doesn't work out. Israel constantly compromises. And, um, you know, the Old Testament story of coming together with other nations and worshipping their gods and trying to draw together the worship of God and the worship of idols and making it work. And it's an absolute disaster and it ends in, in ends in the exile and uh, it's, it's not good at all. But, you see, we know from the Bible, we know from the New Testament that when God said, Abraham, to your seed, primarily he was talking about the true Israelite, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. So Jesus comes as the Jewish Messiah And as the saviour of the world. He comes and he lives life to the glory of God. Jesus is the fulfilment of that promise to Abraham. He wasn't welcomed. He wasn't welcomed even by his own people. Didn't welcome him, the Bible says. In fact, we find people who previously hated one another coming together to destroy Jesus. We find Pilate and Herod... Up until that point, they were at hostility. But when it comes to uh, getting Jesus uh, killed, they come together. So again, you see, it's a strange thing. There is a unity that comes, but it's against God. It's against God's anointed. It's not the unity that God is after of the nations. You see it. You see it. People will gather under any other banner, really, than, than the banner of Jesus. Because that's God's plan. God's ultimate purpose, Ephesians 1 verse 10, is that everything is gathered together under Christ as a head. That's the will of God. That's the purpose of God. He really cares who the head of the nations is. He really cares who rules the nations. And rightly so, because the ruler of the nations determines the well-being of the nations, right? Always. You get an unrighteous king on the throne, trouble follows. You get the right king on the throne, it's a blessing for the whole world. It's God's plan that Jesus be the king of the earth. The king of the earth. And Jesus' plan is to return to his planet and set up his throne. And rule the nations. And that is what we see here. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. He Before he ascends to heaven, he says to his disciples, make disciples of all nations. I want all of them. I want everyone to know me and love me. And then in Revelation 22, which we'll get to in a few weeks time, we read about this beautiful image of this healing of the nations. I mean, the nations are broken. The nations are broken by sin. You name whatever culture you are from. There are wonderful elements that, that shine out the glory of God and there are broken elements, aren't there? It's always easier to speak about your own culture because it's not so delicate. I'm happy to, you know, I think there are many wonderful things about the English culture, I really do. I think there's a, I think there's um, particularly around justice. I think our, it's not perfect, but there's, there's a justice system that works and it's a wonderful, wonderful, so grateful when, I, you, know, when you are suddenly aware of the corruption that is rife through many other nations. Even though it's by no means without it, we are very blessed by our justice system. I thank God for it. It reflects in some way the justice of God. It's wonderful. It really, really is. I would say one of the broken elements of our nation is our we str- we really do struggle to express quite what we feel. We struggle to appropriately express love, appropriately express sadness. I, I know I do. I know I go all funny. I go all, we sort of disappear <laughs> when we're sad. The English, I used to think that was normal. And suddenly I went to an, an African wake once and I thought, oh my goodness, this is, this is incredibly such a different experience. You think, wow, it's, people are able to be together and still mourn. It's amazing. Um, to just even to express love and to express joy, you know, we, we're not great. Every culture has its brokenness, but through Christ there will be healing. For the nations. It's a beautiful picture where somehow in the new heavens and the new earth we still all keep those wonderful elements of our culture and uh, there will be nations in heaven. And there will be elements of culture that c- come through. I think, I think it's God's desire. He loves the nations. It's not going to just be that bland. Please get a bl- anything bland in your mind about the new heavens and the new earth. Kick it out. It's a horrible thing. And I think sometimes that's why we maybe not look forward to it much because we kind of deep down we think I think it might be bland, just kind of singing soft rock songs twenty four seven, all dressed in the same clothes. Just the white robes doesn't mean you are going to be wearing the same clothes. It's, it's symbolic. It's pictorial. It's talking about being cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Doesn't mean you are going to be wearing white robes. There will there will be nothing bland in the new heavens and the new earth. God is the God of color, right? God is the God of expression and cultural uh, vibrancy He loves all of that. So there'll be that there. But the brokenness will be healed. So think about what is broken in your culture. It'll be healed. It won't be there anymore. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so how do we apply... Okay, so that's the future. How do we drag that by God's grace into our, into our experience of that? It's got three things I want to say, then we're done. How do we apply this? What does it mean for us? Firstly, it's this. Be amazed at the gospel. Up. Be amazed at the gospel. Okay? God has made a way for people that otherwise would move away from each other to come together. Seriously. You've got to understand this is amazing. We, we misunderstand each other so easily, don't we? Anyone ever been at a bus stop and you've got some English people there and some non-English there? So you've got some cures and some non-cures. Right? And I'm, I'm a sensitive guy, so I can see it coming. I'm thinking, oh, no. <laughs> so the bus comes, and I wince. I can't, sometimes I can't even look. <laughs> because you go, oh, you know, John and Joan Smith that have been sat there for 20 minutes, and they were at the front. They were there before anyone else, and they've queued. Right? And you've got Enrique, or whoever. <laughs> He's arrived 30 seconds ago. And the bus comes and vroom he's on. And you're like, I can't look, I can't look, I can't look. Or driving. is driving? If it's a driving, it's like, oh, this is driving. I mean, you know, you've got someone who's used to driving in Africa or China. And it's like... Just get where you've got to go and everyone else will sort of figure it out. You know, everyone else around you, they'll, they'll be doing the same. And it's cool. It's cool. You know, I've been to North Africa a few times. You've got a family of five on a moped and it's all good. Everyone's happy, hanging off, you know, dangling. It's fine. Everyone's, it's fine. I don't know. How, it works. Strangely, it works. And then you've got, you've got the English person behind the wheel, like, freaking out. Because <laughs> uh, why? Because you're being rude. But that person doesn't think they're being rude. Did you know? we just we're just A to B. Do you see what I'm saying? It's you just miss each other, on so many fronts. It's rude. rude. I Remember, we were on a holiday. <laughs> we were on a holiday in, um, in in Holland. They don't queue in Holland. Not interested, right? So we took the kids to an activity. and We were sort of queuing up, waiting, and I thought was going to happen. A few English people, you know, and then a few Dutch or oh, German just walked straight through. Just walked straight through. All right, so I've got this woman next to me. I can't believe it, she tells she me. I can't, I can't believe it. And she starts, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of subtly, without sort of going to a big gospel preach, you know, just saying, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't think queuing is part of, you know, some cultures. But she's just too offended to even hear me. <laughs> it's offensive. Yeah, it's offensive. You know, you come in my house, you're from another cult- culture, maybe like more uh, kind of warmer part of the world, more hospitable part of the world. You come around my house, you get a cup of tea and a biscuit. We think we're being generous. You think, What? Where's the three-course meal? Yeah? We thought, no, we cracked out the custard creams for you. You should be grateful. <laughs> see, it's like you just miss each other. Yeah, it's, it's, just cult, it's, culture. it's culture. But in, in, in God, he has made a way for us to, to to find one another through Jesus, right? And then point two application. Done the up, grateful for the gospel, right, okay. Jesus, I believe that there's power in the gospel to really help us find one another, right? So thank you, Lord. And then number two, in, then we do the work of finding one another. Because you can't love someone if you don't get them. You can try and act lovingly towards someone, but if you don't understand them or know them, you can be missing them. It happens so often in marriage. You know, but I've just, you know, I've just done the most amazing thing for you. You know, and the husband and the wife can say, do you know what, That I, I didn't even notice that. But what I did notice is that you didn't do this. <laughs> and as long as it's handled well, you can learn, oh, I, I, okay, right, you get to know, once I know someone, then I can love them. If we do not take time to get to know one another, we're not going to do very well at loving one another. We'll be just acting out of assumptions the whole time. So in our gospel communities, I absolutely suggest and advise that we take time to get to know each other. Let, tell your stories. Where did you come from? T- what's your journey been? Who's influenced you? What does your family or your culture really value? And it's not just nations, it's often class. Especially from a class society. England is still very much a class society. Middle class and working class, it's, it's a different culture. It's a completely different culture. Trust me, I know. And so you've got to have time to think what is it that you really value? What, why? And then, then we can, oh, now I know how to love you. Okay. Now I know how to serve you. All right, okay, now I know how to connect with you. Now I know that when you walk into my door, I should give you a hug. Now I know I need to stop giving you so many hugs. (laughs) Yeah? Because you're from from a kind of what I would describe as a stiff culture. You know, you're going to take some time to warm up to the hug thing. So just simply swamping that person every time is not how they're going to warm up to it, okay? You've got to learn that. But if you start holding off to someone who's from a huggy culture, don't, don't, don't you love me? Yeah, and sometimes it's personality as much as nation. nation. Family, fam- just your family, how we didn't do it. But listen, I'm just saying this, if we're in a rush, if we're always scurrying around and we never take times in our communities to actually get to know each other, it's going to be a bit of a shame. And I, I think, you know, particularly in London, we've got to say it loud and clear, we have to take time with one another. We have to take time with one another. We've all got to learn it. None of us find it easy. We've all got to learn it. It's really, really important. And it's part of how we apply this wonderful truth. And then the final thing I would say is that as a church, we need to connect very meaningfully with international work. We need to connect very meaningfully with it. We've got a nations on our doorstep, which is wonderful. But it's still very healthy for a church to have connection internationally. Now, obviously, we've had the privilege of, um, you know, sending out, Different people to different parts of the world. Um, I was with the guys via Skype in Riga, Latvia, just this morning, and um, it's a wonderful time with them. They're doing well. They're, they're they're growing strong. You know, sent Matt out to plant a church there a few years back. It's going well. It's going well. The guys in, in, in Poland are doing really well. Sandra in North Africa, she's getting on great. You now people are people are people are doing well, and, and it's great that we've got those those connections um those connections there. I think it's also really important that if we can. That, our, that we develop connections increasingly internationally with the poor. I just think it's really, really important. As a rich nation, which we are, we are a rich nation. You may be struggling, but comparatively, you're rich. And as a rich nation, we have a responsibility, like the Gentile churches took up offerings for the poverty-stricken Jewish church. I want to talk to you, just going to end now, talking about our offering today. I want you to know what it's going towards, because it's beautiful. I want to just give you a bit of, a little, as much detail as I can. There's a guy that I think many of you haven't met yet, a man and his wife, who I, I've only met in these last few months. I've known, I've known who they are for years, but I've only met them in the last few months. And they're just beautiful people. They're called Edward and Frida Berea, and they're in Kenya. And uh, they've just, they're just doing an amazing, amazing work. In that nation, and um, we want to particularly get behind one specific project that they are involved in today. Now, just to let you know. So, Edward is is um, an apostolic leader, also a local church pastor. His he's, he's, um, church meets in the, in Meru, in Kenya, and also they have a television program that reaches millions every week. It's an amazing ministry, a wonderful, gentle couple they are. mighty business people as well there. One of their emphasis is empowering the poor in micro-businesses to be able to really um, not just get a hand out, but get a hand up. But the particular thing I want to focus on today, I've been in touch with Edward asking him about it, is that they do this work with um, vulnerable children and orphans. It's a huge, it's a huge, huge uh, issue out there in Kenya, particularly with the AIDS academic and epidemic and there is there are with these children they do seven things firstly they sponsor their education which includes provision of school fees school uniforms books and other stationery secondly they provide clothing food and housing thirdly medical care fourthly food supplements to those orphaned through HIV and AIDS fifthly counseling sixthly connecting children to their relatives and seventh mentoring and they pay for their education right through to university And Edward said this, he says, The greatest encouragement and our joy is that of seeing our continued intervention, not touching and transforming the lives of the beneficiaries only, but spilling over to the community. Those sponsored have a responsibility of putting something back to the community, and this has been so evident. And he sent me through various stories of different young people that have come up through this program. And uh, it obviously costs a lot of money to meaningfully... um, bring a three-year-old, two-year-old into your life and effectively parent them till they're 18. And obviously this is all done in a, in a Jesus-soaked environment, constantly sharing the love of Jesus um, with these children. It's Jesus-centered. This kind of project should make our hearts sing. Um, it should absolutely make us rejoice and we should be able to give happily to it, whatever we can. Whenever we come and do offerings, it's, it's, always, it's before you and God. No one's keeping a record of what individual has given what. It's not about that. It's about saying, you know what, with what I've got, I want to I invest in sustainable kingdom activity. And, um, and ha- so half of our offering today will be going towards that. We're going to take our offering at the end of this sermon, half of it will be going towards that. The other half is towards the church housing fund. Now, the church housing fund, is, it, it, that matters for future sustainable ministry in this area. Um, it will release as we are able to invest in buying a house. It will release a lot of money over time that's currently spent on rent in the church house. So it's, it is an investment in eternity. It's an investment in the long-term ministry of, of the church here and whatever churches God helps us to plant in this area. That's what it's for. Uh, I feel totally comfortable standing bef- in front of you, saying, "Give," calling you to give, um, calling you to give into this ministry, what you can, according to the grace that God gives you, according to your faith, according to your means. Just be before God on it. Just be before God on it. But whatever you do, do it cheerfully. Do it cheerfully. Um, it is a privilege to be joined in with the grace of giving. If you can't do it cheerfully, we'll honestly say this, we'd rather you didn't. We'd rather you just sit it out until you're able in your heart to really understand it and say, yeah, I want to be involved. It's a great, great privilege to be a part of it so God's heart is for the nations he's caught us up in that along with the rest of his church around the world we all do a little bit right we all contribute what we can but together somehow he the head draws it all together into something that finally will look very very glorious so I hope that's helpful I hope it's kind of revelation 7 in there but it's also just trying to help you understand the big story of God's heart for the nations also and hopefully hopefully we'll be able to catch his heart in our hearts And really, and really invest ourselves in, in thanking him for the gospel, in giving time to one another, to get to know one another, and in investing out there into the nations. Amen?